the story's told that a little girl had learned the story of Snow White and the Seven, and the seven Dwarfs and wanted to tell the story to her mum. So when she got down to the place where the prince kissed the, the Snow White and awakened her from her sleep, the little girl said, and mum, do you know what happened next? Well, the mum knew the story well. So she said, yes, they all lived happily ever after. Oh, no, they didn't, the little girl said, with a real frown. That's not how it ended. They got married. (laughs) Those of us with our wives beside us, we can't laugh too heartily. But there is a kind of measure of truth in that. Because all good fairy tales, they're supposed to end with, and they all lived happily ever after. But we know that in real life, nobody lives here happily ever after. Happy ever after doesn't happen on this earth. And yet, I have to say, there's still a bit of disappointment when I read the end of Noah's story. And disappointed that it didn't end with the passage we looked at last week. That wonderful passage of those amazing promises from God. Think about it. Noah, he had walked with God in close fellowship, despite being surrounded by a world of evil. And when God told him of a coming flood, he built an amazing ark just simply in response to God's command, out of just simple obedience. And through his faithfulness, God used Noah to ensure the survival of all of humanity and all the different kinds of animals. And last week we saw how God blessed Noah and his family with a renewed purpose and bountiful provision and a wonderful promise. And if Noah's story had ended there, then I think it would have been a fitting end for an amazing person. An amazing life. You could say, and they all lived happily ever after. But of course they didn't. That's not the end. There's another passage that comes in Genesis chapter 9 from 18 to 29. Because that's not the end of the story. They didn't live happily ever after. Let's read it together. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah was a man of the soil, proceeded, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine and found out what his, what his youngest, brother, what youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. 
He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years and then he died. Some people are incredibly optimistic about themselves. They think that if they could just change their environment, if they just could improve their standard of living, or transform their circumstances, or get away from difficult and obnoxious people, then they would be able to overcome all of the problems in their lives. Their bad habits would disappear, their character flaws would, would vanish, their selfishness would be minimised. But Noah and his family show something different. Their experience says something very different to us. Because when they stepped out of the ark, they stepped into a world that had been totally transformed. That violent and evil culture of the pre-flood world had been completely wiped out. Competition and rivalry was unnecessary because there was a whole world out there for them to explore. And then there were only eight people on the earth at that time. And they were all family. So they didn't have to deal with difficult people all around them. Now, this little fact, of course, means that the Bible says that all of us, all the people alive today, are descendants of the one family, of the eight people who walked out of the ark. That we are all either descendants of Shem, or Japheth, or Ham. As from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. And of course that's another aspect of the book of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, that people really struggle with today. They find that is impossible for a number of different reasons. I think one of them is just the size of the world's population today. How could the world's population, which is something like 7.6 billion people, how could that all have come from just eight people who walked out of that ark something like four and a half thousand years ago according to the genealogies in the Bible? And yet, even though instinctively that just seems impossible, a little bit of research actually shows that that can be quite easily defended. It's estimated that in 1804, the world's population hit one billion people for the very first time in 1804. In 2012, just over 200 years later, it had reached seven billion people. So that means over that period of 208 years or so, it took 74 years for the population to double. To go from 74 years to go from one to two billion. 74 to 2 to 4, and then 4 to nearly 8. But for the world's population to go from 8 people to 7 billion in 4,500 years, 
that requires only a doubling time of something like 150 years. So what that means is that the population growth suggested in the Bible from 8 to 7.6 billion over 4,500 years is actually half the growth rate that has been recognised, that has been recorded in the world's population growth today. So that growth, even though it just seems incredible, how do you go from 8 to 7.6 billion? Actually, it's not an impossible growth rate. It is just something, it's actually half of what we've seen over the last two centuries, even with all of the wars and all, all of the deaths that have occurred through violence. Of course, another objection is that it's just the diversity that we see in, the, in, in, in people today. If we're all just of one family, how can there be so many differences within people of size and shape and colour and language and culture? How can there be so much diversity in the human race if we're all just members of the one family? And yet we see that kind of, kind of diversity in other species too, like the dog family. So many varieties of the domestic dog. And they vary so much from each other. From the Chihuahua to the Great Dane. And yet all of them belong to the same species. They're all part of the same family of species. And the Bible says that that's the same for, the, for, for human race. For human beings. So in Acts chapter 17 it says, From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And what that means is, it means all forms of racism are just plainly ridiculous. Because basically we are all one race. We are all related to each other. If you go far enough back, we are all from one family. So we're all just distant cousins. Now, how do we get so diverse in language and culture? Well, we need to wait till Genesis chapter 11 to see that. So we're not going to touch that just now. So for me, I think we can accept what the Bible says about where all this world's population came from, that this, they all came from Noah and his family. Noah and his family, they stepped into a brand new world with none of the problems of this violent and sinful culture that was there before the flood or of attacks from other nations or from persecution even from any unbelievers or any other religions. Because they were one family that had all been rescued by God coming out of that ark. And yet this family didn't have a happily ever after. Their circumstances were excellent. Their environment was perfect. The people around them, they couldn't have been better. They were family. And yet they were still messed up. They were still a messed up family. And they show... That the problems that we have are not really in the world out there. But the problems we have are in our heart, in here. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond 
secure. And what that means is that the solution to our problems in our life are not about fixing the world out there. But what we need is a change of heart. It's not about sorting out the other people. It's not about getting away from other people. It's not about changing our circumstances. It's about having a change of heart. That's what we need. I think maybe the surprising thing with Noah's family is that the problems in his family, it actually started with Noah, the guy who walked with God. If you look at verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, he proceeded to plant a vineyard. Now, in a sense, there was nothing wrong at all about doing that. The Bible does not condemn planting a vineyard or making wine. In fact, in the Old Testament, wine is often seen as a sign of God's blessing. For example, when when Isaac blessed Jacob, his son, he said this, May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's riches an abundance of grain and new wine. And then if you go into the New Testament, Jesus' first miraculous sign was, of course, at a wedding, changing the water into wine. And then, just as we'll remember today in communion, when Jesus called us to remember him and his sacrificial death for us on the cross, he gave us bread and he gave us wine. And when Paul wrote to Timothy about how to cope with the health issues in his life, he said to him, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. I guess because the water in those days was possibly contaminated and it would just exacerbate his stomach problems. So the Bible doesn't condemn alcohol use, but it does warn against it. Very strongly warn against it. For example, in Proverbs chapter 20, it says, Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. And unfortunately, Noah wasn't wise in his dealings with alcohol. Verse 21, when he drank some of, the, some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Through alcohol, Noah went from the dignity of walking in relationship with God of obeying God's commands, of saving his family and all these different kinds of animals to that great height. Noah went to the depths of humiliation and shame, lying drunk and exposed in his tent. And it should be a serious warning to all of us about the dangers of alcohol. Especially living in Ireland where there is a serious problem with alcohol. Now, in case you think I'm attacking Ireland, it's not that much different from Scotland. I think we're probably a bit worse over there. But according to recent data in Ireland, over half of those who drink in this country are classified as harmful drinkers. Half of people who drink alcohol. Ireland is second only to Austria in terms of its problem with binge drinking. Alcohol is responsible for three deaths in this country Every day. 
And it's a factor in 160,000 assaults every year. And in 62% of child neglect cases. So, reading those statistics, just looking outside, driving through Enniscorfio on a Saturday night, all of these should tell us that we need to be especially careful to avoid those dangers of alcohol. Now, let me be clear. How we do this, our own approach to that, I think that's our own personal decision. I think that's something that we need to decide between us and God. For Lauren and I, we've just decided to that the safest option is just to avoid it completely in our lives. We've seen what it's done to people, individuals, and to their families. And we're determined not to bring that danger into our family. So we don't, just don't let it in. Now you might come to a different conclusion. But whatever we decide, we need to avoid the danger of alcohol abuse. And the dis- absolute disastrous consequences that it can bring into anybody's life. Surely if we see Noah fall into this trap, then we can recognise that none of us are beyond the temptation of alcohol. So Paul writes to the church in Ephesians, in Ephesus, sorry, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So Noah was foolish in his, in his handling of alcohol. And it had a devastating impact on him, putting him into that shameful situation. But it had a disastrous impact on his family. Look at verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. Now, if you read some books about this, about this passage in Genesis, there's a lot of debate over what, what exactly Ham did. Some people have suggested that he must have done something more than just look at his dad and go and blab about it to his brothers. He must have done some act on his dad that was just improper and immoral. But that's not what the passage actually says. It does actually say that Ham just looked and spoke. He saw his dad in that situation and showed absolutely no concern for his dad's dignity. Instead, he just left him in that state and then just publicised it to his brothers. Maybe even suggested that he laughed about it to his brothers. Now, although it might seem a, a kind of minor indiscretion in our minds, to God that was a serious lack of respect for, for, his, for, the, for his dad. And we can see the seriousness of this when we look at the rest of the Bible. For example, the Ten Commandments. You'll know the Ten Commandments given to the people of Israel, the first four are to do with their relationship to God. The next six are more about their relationship to each other. And the first of those six, the first of God's commands given to people and how they should relate to each other, Well, it's to honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. God was clearly making this responsibility a priority. And the New Testament continues to teach the importance of this. For example, in Colossians chapter 3, children, obey your parents in everything 
for this pleases the Lord. And then we listed the characteristics of the terrible conditions of this world in the last days. He says, people will be disobedient to their parents. As being a really a mark of the fact that this world has just gone to pot. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we as adults are duty-bound to always do what our parents teach us. We know that, don't we? That we don't always have to just do what our parents say if they're still alive in our lives. Because like every human relationship, our commitment to God should come first. However, as far as we can, we should seek to honour and respect our parents even when they fall very far, far short of the standard set for them. Like Noah did. Noah fell short of the standard that God had set for him to be the example and the leader of his family and yet Ham was still responsible for his lack of respect shown to him. And that's contrasted with Shem and Japheth. Because they took a garment, laid it across their shoulders, then walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. And they did it all that way so that they turned the other way so they could not see their father's nakedness. They refused to follow the example of Ham and instead, with great care and respect, they backed into that tent and covered up their dad in a way to preserve his dignity. And to respect him. Now of course that was an act of grace, wasn't it? It wasn't their fault that their dad was lying in that situation. That was completely on on their dad. In a sense, it wasn't their duty to cover him up. But out of love and respect, they acted in kindness to do what they should have been able to do for themselves. What, what Noah should have been able to do for himself. And that's what Peter writes. He says this, Love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now that's not about hiding things that need to be brought out up into the open. Okay, It's not about doing a cover-up. Covering up people's faults so they can continue to keep on sinning in that way. That's not what it's talking about. Rather, it's about how we should respond in a loving way to people when they sin and are suffering the consequences of that sin. It means that love doesn't rush in to criticise and condemn people because love covers over a multitude of sins. It means that love doesn't go about gossiping about that person's fault. Have you heard what that person did? Isn't that disastrous? It also says that love just doesn't turn away and just leave that person to to deal with their own struggles and their own issues. Well, you made your bed so you'll just lie on it. Instead, love says that we should act in kindness and grace to seek to minimise the damage, to seek to heal the wounds, rebuild the relationships, restore that person as far as we can. And that's what Shem and Japheth did. But here's the point we get to where we see that Noah's family haven't experienced fully the fullness of God's grace in their lives. 
Because instead of finding forgiveness and grace, they went on to suffer the tragic consequences of sin in their lives. Because when Noah sobered up and discovered what had happened, he responded, yes, with a blessing to some, but also with a curse. He said to Ham, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Now it's really not clear why he said it to, to Canaan, not to Ham. Maybe it was because, if you remember last week we saw that God had blessed Noah and his sons. So maybe Noah didn't want to then curse the one that God had blessed to kind of go against God's word in that situation. So he uh, uh, he, he dealt with Ham's son in that way. Or maybe it was a prophecy. It was prophetically helping the nation of Israel deal with the situation that they were facing just when Noah wrote this in the book of Genesis. Because they were on the, on the border of the promised land entering into the land of Canaan. The descendants of Ham. And they'd been given the duty to judge that, those nations, the, the, the Canaanites, for their sin against God. So what is clear is though, that Ham's actions were going to have a far-reaching consequences in his life. His descendants were going to follow his example in living a sinful life. And because of that, they were going to suffer in slavery. Shem and Japheth, on the other hand, they were blessed because of their kindness to their dad. Blessed be the Lord. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. And we saw that become a reality for the, for the descendants of Shem. Because the nation of Israel were descendants of Shem. And they did enslave the people of Canaan when they entered into that promised land. Judging Canaan, the Canaanites for their sin, for their rebellion against God, for their sexual immorality, for their idolatry. So there was no happily ever after for this family. Noah's sons, in a sense, got what they deserved. The guilty were cursed. And the blameless were blessed. And as a result, that family was divided. Division. Separation. And that's the way of the law. That's the way of the law. Because in the law, those who obey the law are blessed. But cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now that's justice, isn't it? That's fairness. If you keep God's law, you're blessed. If you break God's law, you are cursed. But the problem is, if that's the end of the story, then which group do we belong to? The blessed? Or the cursed? Because of course the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person has sinned against God. Even somebody like Noah was a sinner. 
So even although he lived a long life and did amazing things, still Noah fell short of God's, um, God's standard. And he suffered the wages of sin. Because even after 950 years, Noah's life ended. He died. So despite all of the things that the flood had changed, this problem remained. The problem of sin and death. But of course we are here, aren't we? Because somebody did come to solve out that problem. That's why Jesus came. He came to deal with the issue of sin that nothing and no one could ever. Christ, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. On the cross, our sin was placed on him and he suffered the full punishment that should have been ours. He died in agony, in nakedness, and in shame. And so that if we put our faith in him, then we can be forgiven, we can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we can be adopted into God's family and live in fellowship with him forever. So through faith in Jesus, we, the guilty, are blessed. Because Jesus, the innocent, the blameless, was cursed. It's that reversal that changes our lives. That changes our destiny. So Noah and his family did not live happily ever after. Even although they entered into a brand new world after the flood, sin still had a hold on their lives. And it pulled them down into shame and death and defeat. But this doesn't need to be the end of our story. Because we live in a world where sin still reigns, where life is still hard, where people still rebel. But because of Jesus, even though we can't change our environment, Jesus has changed us on the inside. And we can live a brand new life. Through faith we can enter into that relationship with God. We can experience His love and His joy and His peace. We can serve in His kingdom. And we can have the confidence that the end of our story isn't and he died. Full stop. The end of our story is that Jesus will come back and he'll take us to be with him forever. Where we will live happily ever after.